Kitty Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron, and I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Betsy Banks-Saul, MS founder and CEO. With a vision to change the way the public views shelter pets, Betsy harnessed the infant technology of the internet in 1996 and molded it into one of the most successful internet businesses to date, PetFinder, the first site of its kind, which Betsy describes as a social profit company, is on a mission to see that no pet is euthanized for lack of a home and to increase the value of the family pet. In its corner of the internet, currency is lives saved. After almost 20 years of consistent and steady growth in adoptions, traffic, and revenue, even in the face of a turbulent dot-bomb and recession years, PetFinder's success translates to over 2 million adoptions annually. In 2005, Betsy co-founded Pet Video, which became the pet training video initiative of PetFinder and Animal Planet. In 2006, media giant Discovery Communications acquired PetFinder. In 2013, Nestle Purina acquired PetFinder. Betsy began to focus on what would become Heal House Call Veterinarian. Betsy's top priority is identifying strategies to increase the quality of life for animals and their people, and her work has always emphasized collaboration and partnerships. Betsy has been working with and volunteering for animals since she was a teen. She has been a park ranger in Alaska, an agricultural extension agent at Rutgers University, and a field scientist for the Army Corps of Engineers. Betsy received her BS in biology with a minor in chemistry from Missouri Southern State University, where in 2014, she was invited back to give the convocation address. She received her MS in natural resources from Clemson University. In animal welfare, Betsy's attention is focused on brand broad scale progress. She sits on the board of advisors for Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine for Tufts University, and also serves on the board of directors for PetFinder Foundation and the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs. Betsy prides herself for having friends in high and low places. Her family includes a diversity of characters ranging from the very large, like Missy, a black Angus cow, to the diminutive Sydney, a box turtle. Betsy, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So it sounds like you've had an incredible passion for animals in general. Tell us a little bit about your interest in understanding more about cats. I believe you have a cat or two as a pet. Do you have a specific passion for cats or is it just animals in general? That's a loaded question for me, right? <laughs> yes, yes, I like them all. Um, I, I actually always surprise people when I describe myself as a cat person because cats have never been sort of an external focus of mine from a business perspective, although I think they should be, and more and more that's coming to pass. I My first pets were cats, and my favorite pets have been cats, and I just lost Charlie, who was 16 or 17 years old. He was an orange tabby, and so anyone who loves orange tabbies will not be surprised to hear that he was really a little man in a cat suit, mm. and uh, and he passed away about a week and a half ago or two weeks oh. ago. So we're, we're sort of catless right now, and I have two dogs who are incompatible with cats, and so I'm not going to get to have another house cat, but I do have a barn, and we go down to Orange County Animal Shelter here in North Carolina where my farm is and we go in my granddaughter and I even made a song you know I was trying to prep her that we were not going to go in and get the cuddly kitten and so we made a song up I will not sing it for 
you on this podcast, <laughs> unless you ply me with margaritas or something. <laughs> but it's about going to the shelter to get the meanest, ugliest, most unattractive, unadoptable cat that you can find. So we go in and we say, we need somebody who's going to be euthanized because they're unsuitable for a home. And we, we bring them home and let them live in our barn. And so far, we've gotten the most incredible pet cats to live in our barn because the cats are so misunderstood in shelters, right? Their, their behavior is so different. So we go in to get the one that, that they're calling feral or that is just incompatible with life with humans, theoretically. And what we find usually is they're miscategorized all too often. So I do have cats, even though my dogs can't be near the barn and my barn cats can't be near the house, but I do get to have some cats in my life. Right now I have Nash and Stella. Oh, wonderful. Great names. You have this incredible background as a park ranger and being interested in forestry. And you were sharing a little bit more with me before we hit the record button. And I'm just trying to understand how you went from that into basically developing a software package, PetFinder. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the path that took you into developing PetFinder? Sure. You know, that old adage, master of none, right? That describes me pretty well. <laughs> so, so jack of all trades, master of none. PetFinder was sort of an accident. My ex-husband, Jared Saul, co-founder of PetFinder, who also serves on the PetFinder Foundation board with me currently, we were driving talking about what would be the perfect website back in 1995, just before the end of the year. And we were complaining really about the websites that existed in 1995, of which there were about 200,000 websites, I think at that time Mm -hmm. and saying that they were, um, if they weren't education sites like .edu, they were corporate representations of annual reports or something or really not taking advantage of the web to the best of its ability. And you have to, in context, you have to remember this is the same year Yahoo was invented and it was early days. And you were, you were doing animal stuff about the same time. I think that we came Mm -hmm. up in the industry about the same years that 1995, 96, I think you started in 94, maybe. Yep. You know, back in the day, things were really different than they are now. And so as we were driving down the road, kind of kvetching about what would be the perfect use of the World Wide Web, which is what we called it back then. We said it would be searchable and sortable and it would have four color printing or deliver four color marketing materials that you could never afford to do printing old school. And then I said, yeah, but there would be one final criteria. We we described probably what would have become Realtor.com. I would have had a very different path in life probably had I made a Realtor.com. But (laughs) but instead, we said there would be one final criteria. It would be for some government or nonprofit initiative that it would never have access to that kind of marketing, you know, the kind of marketing that would get you into people's homes with information that needed to be sorted because there was so much information that unless you sorted it out and filtered through it, it would be meaningless. You know, what would be better off if there were photographs instead of just words? But that last thing saying that, you know, there needed to be some sort of social profit realm to make it the perfect website, right? like animal shelters, because we were huge animal lovers. Mm -hmm. And yet I couldn't have told you where the local shelter was. And I had volunteered in animal welfare in some capacity since I was 12. So um, the fact that we were those people who were so hungry to be around animals because of college and graduate school, that when we'd see them across the street, we'd cross the street and drop on our knees and treat someone else's pet like it was ours, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, You remember those days when we lived in a no pet lease apartment? Right. So you're just hungry. Well, if we didn't know where the local shelter was, you know, there's a societal problem. And in looking around, it seemed like that was pretty typical. So that was the year they had just come out with CDs with the telephone yellow page directories that you could get the national phone book on a CD-ROM, if you remember. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> We're dating ourselves now. <laughs> so, so the, you know, the, it was such such a novel and weird idea that we could say, oh, well, we could find out what the shelters are in our area. That wouldn't really have even been possible the year before that even. You could find out from your local phone book, but you would have 
have had to have gone to a library to look at phone books outside your area. And then that would even not be statewide. So, you know, I did a quick search on one of these brand new DVDs that I splurged on. Sure enough, there were like 20 animal shelters listed in our state in New Jersey. And we called them and we had 13 original organizations, some that we got from that database and others that I got because they had a business card or a brochure or I saw a lost pet poster in my grocery store on the bulletin board. And we started calling around and 13 organizations were willing to do this crazy thing. I called them and I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of building a website. And if I did that, would you be willing to advertise your pets? And so those organizations, the first one I ever called actually and got a human, the woman said, there is no way I'm putting my pets on the internet for those perverts Hmm. to look at. And of course, back then we were hearing about bulletin boards and creepy guys in basements, you know, on the internet. That was, that was the internet. Those guys are all now relegated, I think, to the dark web. So we 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 have a better experience online than we used to. And, you know, the news picked it up very quickly because, of course, there was nothing soft and cuddly on the internet in those days. We were one of two animal sites, I believe. There was an animal site of some kind in, like, a hiking with your dog site in Colorado at the time. Uh, the rest is history. We just sort of played catch up for the next 15 years, trying to keep up with the technology and the interest. We were really lucky. I mean, you were obviously early, which was great, seeing a vision of going forward. I remember using Pet Finder, and you talked about those posters, you know, where you could print up the posters, yeah. the color posters. I loved those templates. In those days, we weren't all wrapped up into branding as much. I mean, you could put your logo on there in those templates, but, you know, it wasn't the same yeah. color palette or whatever. Yeah, we did a lot of things like that that were kind of crazy. Because we were so early to the internet, we assumed this was your data, you know, your your pet data. And now it's very different. The online websites are all about branding and things like that. But for us, you know, we always just assume that this is community data. If, if these are pets in a shelter, that those pets and that data belong to the community, right? Whoever the taxpayers or donors are that are supporting those shelters. We always enabled a lot of those, actually what we call the old school things like hanging posters, because you know what? You can be as technical as you want, but some things really are local. And the idea of if you lose your pet, all the technology in the world is fantastic. And we rehomed a lot of pets. That's not what PetFinder was about per se, but we did find a lot of missing pets inadvertently for people, but nothing's as good as hanging up posters. I'll share one other little uh, PetFinder story. There's a big Yahoo group in Massachusetts that I've been part of called Mascots, which has over 600 members. And it was really the way to connect groups together when you ran into a hoarding situation, because really those situations, you know, were not appropriate for one group. One group is not going to be able to handle 100 plus cats or whatever the number of cats were. And so in the early days, this group was started and you post that there's a situation with 100 cats and then, you know, 10 groups all take 10 cats and it's all a done deal in seven days. But when the group was started, Janelle, who is the co-founder with me, she went to PetFinder, pulled up the listing of all the groups in Massachusetts, and she emailed them about the Yahoo group through the PetFinder listing. And that is really attributable to the success of the group, I think. That's cool. That's neat. Yeah. And I remember in Massachusetts, we did a lot of neat things like that because through the Mass Coalition and other things that are happening up there, you know, you guys were just progressive. It was fascinating watching what states had these progressive islands of animal welfare. And when we started PetFinder, we said, well, until we have a paradigm where we knew that we could double an organization's adoptions and really have an impact, help clear their shelter, we weren't going to go national. So we were in the sort of the tri-state, you know, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut area for um, maybe a year and a half and then developed what that paradigm was. And we, you know, we kind of figured out what was going on and how to cause shelters to have success with PetFinder. And Massachusetts was not a surprise that it was one of the first states to come on 
and come on aggressively and really make the best of Petfinder. The other two states were a total shocker because I expected California to be the next one, but it was Massachusetts, Michigan, and Texas just were so ready. And that was a really good lesson for me, right? And the other lesson that Petfinder brought me was a couple of really clear lessons. One is, is it's really about the people, right? Your story that that helped enable and made the success of this other organization underscores that where we thought we were starting a site that would help animals and tens of millions of adoptions on Petfinder, you know, maybe 25 or 30 million adoptions now. And and I think that we did some math one time and one out of every seven or eight homes with a pet in it has a Petfinder pet or has had, that's a huge impact on animals. And we had a dramatic impact on reducing euthanasia. I think that the euthanasia rate in New Jersey, the first five years we were around was cut in half in, in combination with spay neuter had some real impact, but but really, when you drill into that, it's the people, you know, like very quickly, maybe within the second year, it became very clear that for us, it was about helping the people who are helping pets. And that focus had a lot, I think, to do with our success. You know, we sort of came at problems saying, all right, there's an army of amazing, wonderful people out there who are helping pets. We're not going to focus on the individual pet. We're going to focus on how do we deliver tools to help the people who are helping pets. And that, you know, has informed what I'm doing now with my new business, which we'll talk about later, I And that that was a big deal. And I think it also played a pretty large role in why we were able to year after year after year maintain a real leadership in the field. And to this day, PetFinder, even though it's no longer mine, quote unquote, and it's no longer Discoveries, and now it's at Purina, there's still an intense PetFinder culture that is, I think, because of that early, early recognition that this is about supporting people, getting pets into families. That's about people. As we talk about people, and you know, you say initially it was all about animals and getting them homes, but this industry, animal welfare, is all about people. And it's something that we have had to think about because many of us entered into animal welfare. Oh, I'm not a people person, and I just like animals, and that's why I'm there. And we have talked a little bit about the impacts of compassion fatigue and the potential exposure issues that are in the field that we're really not talking about. And I I didn't know if you'd be willing to share a few of your thoughts about what you think, you know, going forward with the veterinarians, technicians, shelter workers around cats. And we are exposed to to certain issues and therefore that creates mental health issues. You know, our wellness isn't good. We are anxious, tired and exhausted. What do you think might be going on there? Um, I got sidetracked perpetually the last few years by this issue of pets as part of the family. If we were so focused on spay and neuter and vaccination and all of the minutia of things that we are spending so many resources and so much time on in animal welfare, you know, why weren't we gaining more traction? Why, when we have the secret sauce to, you know, what we're trying to achieve, which we do, some communities, we don't really have dog overpopulation or, you know, like we kind of know the secret sauce for dogs. I'll qualify for cats. I think that there's still a lot of secret sauce to be learned. But, you know, why why aren't we gaining more traction? Why aren't we curing this problem? And why aren't we concerned about developing regions going down the same path and making the same old mistakes of advancing technology without saying, hey, maybe we can avoid some of these pitfalls, you know? And so this idea of pets as part of the family started taking deeper and deeper root for me, not just as what it kind of began is, which is we need a moniker for PetFinder or we need a tagline. And instead it became sort of the root of everything for me. Because of that, I started looking at like what causes recidivism in shelters, what causes pets to get into shelters in the first place. And of course, you know, we've been told that that's a behavior issue. And yet some studies don't really bear that out. 
We're also told early on that it was the veterinarian that has the most impact on whether or not a pet is returned to the shelter. And yet we know veterinarians weren't doing behavior consulting at the time. That's relatively new in the veterinary field. So if veterinarians aren't addressing behavior, and behavior is the number one reason cats are taken to the shelter, and yet the only correlation between a cat not returning to the shelter is whether or not the person has a relationship with a vet. What gives, right? So I started looking at the veterinary relationship, which led to Heal House Call Veterinarian, my new business that I alluded to earlier. And in that, well, I became troubled by the fact that veterinarians, not like animal shelter workers, you know, share some commonalities in that there appears to be more depression than there ought to be. There appears to be more signs and symptoms that we might casually decide that are attributable to compassion fatigue or some other sort of mental illness. And there may actually be more incidents of illness in general. You know, we've talked about the crazy cat lady forever, right? You know, and if you break down, why would we have a stereotype of a crazy cat lady? And you start asking yourself, well, wait, you know, are there some identifiable, I, and I used to joke like animal welfare, we'd go to a conference and be like, oh, look, we're just a, a bunch of divorcees <laughs> trying not to become bitter. And so we're bonding with these animals. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and I think that there is no way to feel better about yourself and better about the world's problems than jumping into the problems and trying to become a part of the solution, right? Like people would say, oh, I can never go to a shelter. Yep. I can never go to a shelter. I, you've heard this before, right? Like it would make you sad. And I would say, you know, that's what we all thought. But in fact, when you get into this, it's very gratifying to be a part of a problem. And, and if you've got something that's keeping you up at night, probably jumping into it is a reasonable solution to that. But when we're talking about depression, like, you know, the kind of depression that's leading to suicides or some of the various other maladies that are going on, I think it's intriguing that the shelter community and the veterinary community, they kind of look the same from a human perspective. And, you know, so you look at vet techs and you look at shelter workers. Well, all that business about compassion fatigue and some of the problems we're having in shelters with coping and, and illness and, you know, various and sundry other symptoms. Why would a vet tech or, or a population of vet techs have those same problems? And that doesn't necessarily mean they have the same thing, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that we should just say, oh, this is because this is a tough job and it's mental health and they were euthanizing animals. And in communities where we haven't been euthanizing animals so much for the last decade, how come the new people are still suffering from a lot of the same things? You know, so it's compassion fatigue in an organization where there's a revolving door of animals coming in and out of the shelter that still could be compassion fatigue because it's sad to have pets be rehomed. But if you're in an organization that has very low euthanasia and has a very high adoptability, I'm not sure that our old paradigms of mental health and blaming that on right. sort of this just like inability to cope with the stressors of the job is a sufficient rationale for the percentage of problems. Now, you could say, hey, well, this draws a certain kind of people or you know, there are all kinds of things you could say. But as I got deeper and deeper into this and it all of a sudden had this interesting because Hill House Call Veterinarian is a company that I've built sort of be a social profit company the way Petfinder is a social profit company. And I genesis of that is to say that I was working with a lot of veterinarians. I was on the vet school board, um, but also my own veterinarians when I had a really sick, uh, decrepit old hound dog, Jim, <laughs> who lasted for ever and ever and ever with disease possible, you know, but was never ready to go. You know, he had, he had sort of a hound dog spirit and he was very stubborn. And so I just kept noticing that my vets weren't as happy as they seem like they should be. And you work too hard and too long to get through vet school to not be happy with your career choice when you're five years out of vet school. So as I started looking at that community more and more, there were so many similarities. And you know me, I mean, you and I have sort of watched each other for years and worked around each other for years. I, you know, those kinds of problems where everybody sort of assumes there's a problem but it's nobody's job to fix it. And there's this acceptance that may or may not actually be keeping up with new information. That's the kind of stuff that gets me kind of excited.
excited. And so I started looking more and more into that. And that led me to thinking about the health of these workers. And accidentally, through Charlie, the cat that passed away recently, I met some researchers at NC State who are doing research on Bartonella. Are you struggling to increase positive outcomes in your shelter? Are you overwhelmed with high stray intake and low owner reclaim? Do you wish you had solutions to your biggest problems? The Path Ahead provides in-person and remote consulting for animal welfare organizations. Let us help you to increase life-saving by engaging your community and maintaining the human-animal bond. The Path Ahead teaches proven best practices for humane, effective animal welfare, including community cat management, missing pet prevention and recovery, and progressive adoptions. By identifying and addressing outdated and unproductive practices, you can reduce intake and length of stay and keep animals in their loving homes where they belong. Leave the past behind and take the path ahead to success. Visit our website at www.animalwelfaresuccess.com. A recent study published by the researchers at Duke University in North Carolina found DNA from Bartonella, which is a tick-borne bug, and they found that active DNA in 28% of veterinary workers compared to none in the control group. And so this is a bacterium that's spread by ticks and fleas and other insects and by animal bites and scratches. So basically, you know, if you get a scratch and there's flea or tick poop nearby, then that scratch can be, maybe you can be infected from saliva of animals, but that's a big, big question. These are really common problems in animal care settings, such as ranches and animal boarding facilities and shelters and cat caretakers more than anybody, I think, are at risk of Bartonella infection. So, you know, think Lyme disease and tick-borne. You know, we're kind of at right. that. You remember when right. Lyme disease was like, well, do we have it? Or is it real? Is it not real? Doctors who were saying it was real were kind of looked at suspiciously by other doctors. And Bartonella is kind of suffering that same thing right now, very much rising in awareness. So now they're thinking that these are actually co-infections. And so a lot of people who have one will actually have several of these infections. Just making things more and more difficult to diagnose. But Bartonella specifically, that's cat scratch fever. There, there are lots of different species. There are a zillion different, not a zillion. There are <laughs> many, I'm not a microbiologist, so I get to say a zillion. Somewhere between, you know, 25 and 200. <laughs> so, and so Bartonella gets misdiagnosed as autoimmune disorders, tick-borne infections, and all kinds of other things. And we're talking about not just depression and food allergies, but potentially lung tumors. Um, there's a study right now where somebody's looking at ALS and whether or not it could have a Bartonella connection, neurological problems, and high absenteeism. There are cases of kids having Bartonella and losing the ability to walk. Yeah. The depression thing is what really freaked me out. I was like, wait a second. Uh, infertility. You know, I've been testing myself for Bartonella because I'm like, look, I've had all of that. I have a limp. I have food allergies. Doctors like to describe my oh. mid zone as a, a hostile zone. <laughs> like I'm infertile. I'm like, and, you know, after several miscarriages, who would put those things together in a work setting, right? Like who would look at someone who has depression and who has some fertility issues and all those things, they would say, oh, well, these are not at all related. Or maybe they would even say this is stress or this is because of post-traumatic stress or compassion fatigue. But nobody's, well, that's not true. There are a few people, but there are few and far between who are saying, okay, shelter workers, you know, we talk a little bit about leptospirosis. You know, I have a farm. I have all kinds of, you know, multi-animal connections and I get scratched, stepped on or marred at least weekly. You know? Right, <laughs> so, right, right. And yet 
when you go to a doctor, there's no doctor really out there who is trained to think about, oh, you have exposure to lots of different animal types. Let's test you for lepto. I tested positive for lepto. And yet that maybe some shelters, you know, and, and veterinary hospitals are talking about lepto with their people. They're certainly talking about rabies, but very few are talking about Bartonella. Very few are talking about, what's the other one that you mentioned when we were talking earlier? Oh, toxo. Toxoplasmosis. Yeah. I've long yeah. since I'm probably a toxo, a toxo person. You know, the fact that I'm an entrepreneur can probably be chalked up to toxo exposure when I was young. <laughs> Seriously, lung tumors? You know, right. you know that's, right. you know, depression. And I think that's very important. I think actually it's going to be relieving to many people in the field to say, hey, let's look at the root cause. I, I do a lot of research with functional medicine uh-huh. and precision medicine. So precision medicine now is going to look at what you do, what your exposures are environmentally, what your genetics are, and be able to overlay all of those together to be able to help you in a way that's very different than what conventional medicine does right now. If you could at least know, oh, I have been exposed to this, or what, and then and then I know how to work with it and treat with it. And I know autoimmune is it's a huge open box and Lyme disease. I mean, it's a big, huge process of how to work with it. But that's better than saying, well, I have compassion fatigue, and it might be because I'm just not strong enough for this. Or right. when I've been through moments of depression, you know, I've been crying in the shower and not knowing how I'm going to get out of the shower. You know, at moment we've all been if you. You've been in this business as long as we have. We've all had our down times. So you, what you just said is really, I think, illustrative. You know, if you've been in any business, it's not this business, right? It's yep. if you've been alive as long as I have. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, then then you are really, really, really lucky if you haven't had some time period where you experienced biochemical depression of some kind, right? Like, so I have food allergies, and if I get gluten, right. man, I go dark. Yep. And I am about the happiest, silver liningest, Pollyannaist person that you have ever met. And when I have gluten, within about three days, I can't see up out of the manhole that I've fallen into. And yep. and it's frightening because I'm smart. I remember that I don't feel this way, you know, like, and yet you can't not feel that way. And that's not about fortitude. And I would have spent my, if I hadn't had that experience with the, the absolute and obvious chemical shift, then I wouldn't have the perspective that I had, I think, growing up, which is, you know, we'll just pick yourself up. Just like, come on, pull yourself together, right? Why are you feeling blue? You need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, and you know, get to work. And that's not just helpful if you're suffering a serious medical, chemical, bio, you know, electrical, whatever that is, depression, right? It's incomprehensible. You know, it's not, it's not even the same language at that moment, you know? And so I think that what we have been doing for years and we do habitually, like you said, if you've been in this field long enough, I think that we need to stop thinking about our field and our love of animals and our interest in helping them. I think that makes things better. And I don't think we're doing ourselves any service by feeling as though that's causative. If that makes sense to you, Mm -hmm. we got to help our industry change the way we're thinking about that. In other words, you've been in this field long enough that you should feel fan-freaking-tastic because you're making a difference, right? And yet we are trained and we assume because it seems obvious that we're, we're in this field facing these issues with pets and so therefore it makes us depressed. I don't know that anymore. Well, there's a why out there. There is a why for how we might be feeling. And, you know, in your case, you could sort of figure it out. But I think there's probably a lot of scenarios where, you know, the malaise yeah. could creep up onto you slowly because of an exposure situation and it's just not being determined. I mean, 
both agree that a conventional doctor is probably not going to say, oh, you work around animals, therefore we should adjust our testing differently. And they would just say, oh, well, here's an anti-anxiety pill, or here's something that's going to let you sleep better at night, or something like that, and layer it on layer it. Unraveling those layers is its own project, right? And sadly, we need medical advocates. Yeah. You know, we all need medical advocates. We shouldn't probably send ourselves to the doctor alone any more than we should send our dog to the doctor alone. You know? <laughs> but, but yeah, unraveling right. once once you are being treated for, you know, and, and, the, and the tests and the treatments for, say, depression are so not the same tests and treatments if you presume that maybe you have, say, a Bartonella or cat scratch fever or, you know, treating the symptoms is just a different thing. And sadly, 28% of veterinary workers compared to zero of the other to me does not mean that everybody out there that's depressed has Bartonella. But it does mean that we should be thinking, huh, you know. Be aware of it. Be aware of it. Yeah. Shelter-borne illnesses, right? Like even if not Bartonella, but like other things. And I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a microbiologist. I'm not researching Bartonella. I got I got no beef in it. All I know is, is that I got lots of weird things. <laughs> I have a lot of weird things going on, you know, with me. And I've had three animals now who have had adrenal tumors or some other issue where we found active Bartonella infections inside the tumor. And that's what led me to find this research team at NC State. And I said, you know, like, there's something going on here. And when I went and met with them, they said, oh, funny you mention it. We are doing a study right now on people that have our exposure to multiple animal types. And we're looking and they're finding a, a large amount of Bartonella in those people that, you know, like me, who are who have cats and dogs and, you know, I had a sheep and goats and horses and a donkey and, you know, a box. Right. So so I think and Bartonella is one right. of, of right. a few. And I think that there are something odd. I'm going to go on a limb and say there are like 140 or something, 120. I don't know. Some, you know, there are a lot of Bartonella species and some of them are in the poop of pill bugs or something. They're not all dog and cat related. The cat scratch fever is the one that we know about. And that's a different species than the one that they think, than the one that they think is, you know, causing depression. And you have this happen too, I'm sure. Where like, I got that, I have no business having that be my soapbox because I really don't know enough about it. But it is one of those areas where I feel like it's an uncomfortable conversation because we, we, we want to convince people to go into sheltering. We want to convince people to go into veterinary medicine. You know, I, I'm desperately interested in really smart people being veterinarians and helping them do a good job at that. You know, I want to know how to protect them. Well, and, and you should. I mean, I talked a little bit earlier about the knowledge about mercury poisoning in the field of dentistry, and they have quite a bit of mental health issues. And you don't hear much conversation about that, but I really think it's almost an epidemic in the field for dental hygienists and dentists, and they're just not addressing that issue. And ignoring it is not going to be helpful for anybody. So hopefully through today's show, folks that are running shelters and folks that are around, you know, cats are aware of things and maybe even, you know, certainly be willing to bring it up in conversation with your doctor, conventional or functional medicine, whoever you have as a doctor, you bring it up and advocate. I mean, we need to be our own health advocates and try your best from that standpoint. Some of these tick-borne infections and flea-borne, you know, like where the vectors are those animals, they're finding that they seem to be clever and they might be hiding in red blood cells. And so the conventional tests don't show them. They don't show up. They're finding with Bartonella, they've found that it kind of hides in the winter. And then in the spring, when the bacteria has evolved to know its vectors are out in the spring, then it uses the energy 
to come out and be an active blood infection. And so they're finding titers are different at different times of the year. Right. Yeah, there's a there's a lab here in the Triangle in North Carolina that is called Galaxy Diagnostics. And they have a website that has a specific, and this is really frightening to me, they have a website that is specifically, you know, one of, you know, 10 or so links at the top of the page in the menu items is for veterinarians. Oh, wow. So, but the galaxy will test and I, you know, and we could, we could have a whole show about Bartonella and tick-borne diseases in animals, Lyme disease and those things in animals, because there's so much that goes undiagnosed there. Um, like I said, I have had two animals, just my personal pets that have had Bartonella in an adrenal tumor. Oh, wow. And that caused them to sort of just fade away for about two years. They just stopped thriving and until finally we found a tumor. But the Bartonella might have been causing the problems before that, right? So if you go to Galaxy Diagnostics, I think it's actually galaxydx.com. They have, from what I can tell, and I'm not associated in any sort of formal way with them, although I have met them now because... I went to them and I said, how can I, Betsy Saul, founder of PetFinder, help you get the word out to animal shelters? Because I got to tell you, I've been working in this industry for a long time and I've never heard of Bartonella as anything other than cat scratch fever. And they're like, oh, well, let us tell you. And so we've, you know, started, I've started, you know, getting their fact sheets and stuff like that and helping spread the word. But I'm not associated with them. But they're, I think, the only ones in the country doing a really aggressive outreach, which can't be aggressive enough, with like sort of fact sheets about Bartonella in veterinary workers and shelter workers. That's fantastic. We'll make sure we'll put that website in the show notes. Podcast listeners, it's Kristen, the Community Cats podcast technical cat. That was kind of an abrupt way to end the show, right? Well, don't worry. It was just part one. Episode 312 brings us back to the interview with Betsy Banks-Saul, where she and Stacy answer the question, how could we change the trajectory of veterinary medicine in the United States? Find out next week. And while you're waiting, head on over to iTunes and review the show. It helps people find us, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and thank you again for all you do for cats.